we have seen in Hebrews so far that Jesus is greater than angels, even though many want to worship angels. Why? Because God used him as a divine communicator, a vessel used by God to communicate his word to his people, so people, oh, let's worship them. God is also greater than Moses. God used Moses in a mighty way to bring about the law and to bring his people out of bondage, out of Egypt. But Jesus is greater than Moses. We also learn that Jesus is greater than Joshua. God used Joshua to bring his people into the promised land, promising them that there'd be a place of rest for them if they would just take the step of faith. But Jesus is greater than Joshua. We also see in the scripture that God is greater than, Jesus is greater than Aaron, the high priest. And we will be studying that today here in chapter 15 because Jesus Christ is our high priest. He's the perfect priest that God Almighty had always planned to bring to his people, to you and I today. In chapter 4, verse 12, we saw that for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If you don't even know why your head is squirrely, get into the word of God. He is going to pierce you in a way to bring clarity of why your thoughts are the way they are. Why your heart drives you in certain things in certain ways that should not be. What motivates you? What's how you spend your time and, your, and God's time that he's given you, the, time, the money that he's given you, the resources he's given you. These things you must go to him and through and by the word of God can sort these, these things that are going on in your, in, even in relationships between people. Don't walk away from the word of God. He is there to speak to your hearts about these things. And he is very clear. We also saw at the very end of chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 15 and 16 for you. Matter of fact, I'll, yes, I'll start actually with 14 there. And it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, my brothers and sisters, how we... I pray that you would understand daily that as a child of God, you don't go through anybody except the perfect priest, and that is Jesus Christ. That you can come to the throne of God, the one who sits to the right hand of the throne of God, and intercedes for you daily as a child of God. I hope that sinks into your hearts, into your minds. Because it solves many people's problems emotionally and spiritually. That they know that God Almighty is literally 
ministering and interceding for you and I. And you must rest in that promise. If you don't, you will just really go squirrely. It could be for a half hour, it could be an hour, it could be days, to a point where it brings you down and spirals you down into depression, oppression, those kinds of things. It doesn't have to be. If you turn your eyes upon Jesus, the great and perfect high priest. Now we see here in chapter 5, verses uh, 1 through 4, we're going to see that the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about a compassionate high priest that we we, we come to. And there's a principles of the priesthood under the law of Moses that God, again, foreshadowed, put in place for the coming of the Messiah, the great high priest. It says in verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in these things pertaining to God, that we may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So God established both the priesthood and the office of high priest in the days of Moses as described in Exodus chapter 28. And the writer of Hebrews neatly summarizes for us today the work of the high priest or the purpose, the mission, the, the reason, the duties of, of the high priest. And it was here that they, that they may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins for God's people. That was their purpose in life. Every day when they woke up, they knew their purpose. The purpose was what? They're going to go there and lead, even utilizing the other priests and other uh, lay people who were there at the temple to get everything ready and put in place in order so that the, there would be sacrifices and gifts that were going to be coming in from the people of Israel. The primary job of the high priest was to officiate. Directly or indirectly, and some things only he could do, but others indirectly as lower-ranking priests were to sacrifice the, the gifts and offerings that were coming in. We were also, if you have been following us along with Leviticus on Wednesday night, you know very clearly you're very well equipped in understanding the sacrifices and gifts, and we went through much detail over the last several weeks in Leviticus. I know it's sad for some of you, your favorite book will be finishing this coming Wednesday with the last chapter, chapter 27, so I know some of you are sad. But you get excited for some of you. We're going into Numbers, your next favorite book. So, so I hope you join us on Wednesday nights. It's, it's going to be a great book to go through. But the phrase gifts and sacrifices for sins reminds us that not every sacrifice was a blood atonement for the sin of the person or the people. Many times these ritual sacrifices were intended to simply be gifts to God, to give back to God what God had given them. We do that in its form of tithes, gifts, and offerings today. They did the same thing, but they had to come to the temple and an animal was killed for that gift or that sacrifice. Verse 2, we see he can have compassion on those who are ignorant or going astray since he himself is also subject to weaknesses. The writer reminds of the high priest and anyone who's reading the scripture that we must have compassion for others. Because if we don't have compassion for others, you will become to this ignorant or ignorant, I love to would say, or going astray since he himself is also subject to weaknesses. We have to humbly remember 
when we see people who are we're driving down the streets of, of uh, parts of Watertown and we see people that are you can clearly see on drugs or clearly drunkenness and clearly things, that we should have compassion for these people. Why? Because we understand our own weaknesses. We could be one of them. If God did not have a hold of us, we could fall to those same temptations and same, uh, those same uh, vices that can grip you. And you can also remember, you used to be there, then you got saved, now you're no longer that drunkard, you're no longer the drug addict, you're no longer the pornography addict. You're not, uh, go down the list of the liar and cheat and steal and all these things. God transformed you. Let us not forget that we're sinners saved by grace and we have been changed and, and moved forward into being things pleasing of God. But we should have such compassion because we used to be like that. We used to think that like that. We used to go to those places. So he's taught here that have compassion because of the weaknesses, because people go astray. God made very specific commands to help the high priest to minister with compassion. If you remember in the scriptures, we see in the breastplate of the high priest were set 12 stones engraved with each of the names of the tribes of Israel. And on the shoulder straps, those stones engraved with the names of the tribes. And this was a, a bearing of the weight of the people of God's people. They were always reminding him of, around his heart and on the shoulders that he was called by God to minister and to, to sacrifice his life for the people. That's what it means to be in the ministry here. And we can go back and you can read about that in Exodus chapter 28, verses 4 through 30. But the high priest was to have passion and always thinking about the people that he's ministering to. In verse 3, we says, Because of this he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sin. So the high priest not only needed to have compassion for people because of the weaknesses that he understands himself, but the weaknesses they find themselves in, but he also had to humbly come to the temple. He had to first sacrifice to, for the covering of his sins. It's a reminding of us. If you don't know, if you're new to the scriptures and you're new, understand under the law the sacrifice of that lamb or that goat was just a temporary covering of their sin. But for you and I, our high priest, our perfect priest, Jesus Christ, went to the cross and died for all the sins of the world. That gives us not just a temporary covering, but a complete finished work, if you will believe and trust in that finished work that he did on the cross. That should be an amen. That should be an amen. That should be a very big amen in your mind. Because if you're saved and you know that the blood of Christ from the cross is paid for completely and you're white as... Not that we want snow yet. But as long as, you know, snow. White as snow. Your sins are completely forgiven. Now some of you right now sitting have a, such a weight on you right now of sin that you don't know how to get rid of that weight. I always refer to it as the 100-pound gorilla that seems to be bouncing on your back, swinging around every day. 
Let me tell you a very simple way. Turn your life over to Jesus Christ, the perfect priest. Go to him. Confess all. And ask for forgiveness. Because he's already paid for it on the cross. He's already made a way for you. You can't work for it. You can't buy it. You can't make faults. I mean, you can try to make faults. Oh, God, after this last drug addict or alcoholic moment, I'll never do that again. How many times have we ever said that about our sin? No, no, this time, give it to him. He'll take it. He took it on the cross. He set you free. He's no longer have bondage. There are no longer shackles on you. He set you free from the prison of sin if you will believe by faith in him and him alone. That simple. Not always easy. Because your flesh gets in the way. Satan might be messing with you right now. At least demonic force is messing with you a little bit. But if you hear the God touching your heart right now, just right now in your head, surrender your life to him and ask him to come into your life. And the Holy Spirit will come in and seal you for eternity. And then he starts the good work. Then he gently, lovingly starts working in our life. And the things that were gripping you will just fade away. They'll just start permeating away. And all more of him and less of you. Back to Hebrews chapter 5. He had to go on that day of atonement. The high priest had to sacrifice for himself first to remind him and the nation that sin to atone, to have atonement, to bring one with the heavenly father, to bring rest for his people, that must take place. We see that in Leviticus chapter 16 verses 1 through 6. And verse 4, and no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So there's a calling that you can do. You can't manufacture this stuff. You can't say, I'm going to claim to be a priest, or I'm going to be claimed to do this. No, God is, is the one that is not going to cause you to get honor. He wants to get all the honor and glory. So we see that, that the high priest was taken from the community of God's people. And was not chosen by God's people. So some, the congregation didn't vote on who this person was going to be called by God. This is a calling by God. This is not about the people. So we see here that they were pulled, brought out of the God's people. And he was appointed by God for his people. It wasn't for himself to bring honor to him. And oh, look at my title. and Look at my position. This is what I get to do. No, 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 whatsoever. The calling of God on someone's life to stand up to sacrifice their life for others who are the congregation that he brings to them, that is not an easy thing. That is not something you want to, I always tell me, oh, I think I'm going to, I think I should be in the ministry, Pastor. It's like, oh, please, there's probably millions of other things you can do before you come to the ministry, please, because it's not easy. Your life is completely going to change coming into the ministry. So make sure it is a, truly a calling of God before you decide to sacrifice your life for others. 
Are you with me? So we see this right here, that the principle that is no man takes this honor to himself is the office of the high priest. was nothing to aspire to. It was something you weren't supposed to campaign in among the people of Israel and say, Okay, let me go to this tent. Hey, here's my little badge. Can you vote for me? <laughs> you go to the next little tent. Hey, can you vote for me? I got, the, I got that tribe of Benjamins on my side, but I don't have the one over here. You know, It's not like that. God reached down and touched a person's life. And he has very much an order. As I will go specifically over this because I think it's so important because many people don't get into the Old Testament to understand why this order that we have. Because the true priesthood and high priest came from a very specific line of descent. Every priest came from Jacob, Abraham's uh, grandson, whose name was changed to Israel. Every priest came from Levi, one of the, uh, Israel's 12 sons that he had. God sent the tribe of Levi or set him apart as a tribe to serve him and represent him to the whole nation of Israel. You can go back to Exodus chapter 13 verse 2 and Numbers chapter 3 verses 40 and 41 to see that specifically. Now Levi had three sons. Gershon, Kohath, and Mary, or Merai. Each of these family lines had their own duties within serving God. Go back today. Go see Numbers chapter 3 and read of this. The family of Gershon had the care of the tabernacle screen or the big veil that separate the holies from the holy of holies area within the, uh, that tent. They had to take care of the, the, the material fencing and the curtains. That was their responsibility to take care of them. So you can picture them. That family said, okay, God's moving. There goes, the, there goes the clatter. There goes the pillar of fire. We better pack up. Their responsibility on that tabernacle is to fold all those curtains and put it all and preserve it and get it to the next place and set it all up. The, the family of uh, Kohath had the care of the tabernacle's furnishings such as the lampstand, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant. We see that in Numbers 3, verses 31 and 32. So again, God's moving, time to move. They're going to take, get that stuff and put it in order and make sure it comes across to the next destination to reset the temple back up. Or a tabernacle back up. Then the family of Mary had care of the boards, the pillars and of the tabernacle, the fence. These families... Again, we're not per se priests, but they were actual people, a part of the Levites, but they were there to do the work of God to help bring the tabernacle across the land. The priest itself came from Aaron, as you know. The brother of Moses, the family comes from Kohath. So the second uh, brother there. Aaron's family and the descendants made up of the priests and the high priests. And nowhere else could they come from any lineage of Israelites. It must come from that family. That's what God designed. That's how it was to be. The high priests were generally the elder son of Aaron who would become the next high priest. Unless, 
<laughs> as we see in the scripture, unless they're disqualified for the ministry, disqualified to become high priest. And you can ask uh, uh, Nadab and Abednego, who in Leviticus 10 verses 1 through 3 screwed their lives up and they were no longer, they weren't going to be able to be high priests. That was very clearly outlined in the, in the uh, regulations of Leviticus 21. Now, there were some examples that we see in the scripture where people say, I want to be a high priest. I want to be a priest. I'm going to be a priest. I'm going to self-appoint myself because I just know God called me that. Be very careful. We see there are three examples in the scripture where they thought they could not humbly, but very proudly take in a position of this calling of God. And they were not called. The first one was Korah, Korah, who swallowed up in a divine earthquake in Numbers 16. How would you like to do that one? How about, how about King Saul? Where we see in 1 Samuel 13, 11 through 14, was rejected because he did that step out of his line, thinking he was king, he's, he's oh, everyone's worshiping me, I can now be the high priest. He lost his kingship over it. How about Uzziah? Think about Uzziah when he was struck with leprosy in the temple itself in 2 Chronicles 26.16. These are men who are so proudful that think they can just do whatever they wanted to do within serving God. We should be, it's, it's foolishness to think you can just do, uh, serve God in any way and however you want to and think there's not possibly consequences going outside the will of God. Those men understood it. Today, we also are prohibited from being our own priest. Because it's, it's arrogance, a great arrogance to think we can approach God on our own without a priest. But it is also superstition and tradition to think you have to go through a priestly man versus the perfect priest, the high priest, Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and the man, Christ Jesus. That is who we go to, and he's the only one you go to. Not to yourself, not to another man, not to a pastor. Not You go directly to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, verses 5 and 6, we say, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, Christ didn't glorify himself to be that. But it was he who said to him, we see in Psalm 2-7, is quoted here, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 6. As he also says in another place, in Psalm 110-4, he quotes here, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You're saying, who's Melchizedek? Oh, the writer is going to spend a lot of time over the next few chapters explaining that to you. And it's important because even the writer now writing to the Hebrews says, we're not going to get into that just yet. It's pretty in-depth conversation. Let's just keep it simple-like for you to understand. But we're going to, I'm going to write to it. We'll get to through 6, but mostly in chapter 7. It's clearly lined up why he's saying he is in the order of Melchizedek. Very important for you to make note. Why? Because it is easy to see why the priesthood of Jesus was very difficult for the Jewish Christians of that day. 
Why would they have difficulty? Well, because they knew the scripture. They knew God's word that said Jesus is not from the lineage of Aaron. Jesus neither claimed nor practiced special ministries within the temple. He never he actually confronted the religious leaders who were overseeing the temple and actually confronted them of their hypocrisies and issues. He wasn't, he wasn't getting his badge out and saying, vote for me because I want to get into the temple and do this work. I mean, he was really pushing back on the religious leaders. In Jesus' day, the priesthood became a corrupt institution. And the office was gained through plotting and political, uh, politicking among corrupt leaders to try to get into positions of power. Why? Why do you think these people were so working hard to supposedly sacrifice their lives for the people, of God's people. Why would they turn this? Because of the greed of money and a greed of power and a greed of position. Those three things still today corrupt a man or a woman. It's sad. Many get into the ministry for the money, for the position, and for the power. God sees all things. It's so important our hearts are right when it comes to serving God. He says there in these verses we just read that today I have begotten you. He's referring to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. At that time he fully assumed his role as the great high priest. It says in Hebrews 9, we'll get to it, says, having been perfected, resurrected, glorified. And he would be a priest forever, we see, according to the order of Melchizedek. Why? Because he had to let the people know this is not about Moses and what God gave to Moses about the priesthood. This actually went before the, priest, uh, the, the law that was given. He was in the order of Melchizedek. And that is why he doesn't have to be from the, Aaron, the lineage of Aaron. So we'll see here in verse 7, there's this high priest who in the days of his flesh... In Jesus' flesh, when he was on this earth, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears, tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. This brings us to the Garden of Gethsemane. Where the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, go back and read that in Matthew 26 or Luke 22. He was there struggling, working through, praying to his heavenly father, the difficulty of being separated from his father. Why? Because the cup of wrath, the sins of the world, were about to be placed upon him. And it'll be the first time his father will turn his eyes away from the son. The weight of sin that separates us from our God. And he said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But the Father says, this is the only way. You're the perfect lamb. You are the great high priest. 
you will be the sacrifice yourself for the world. And so we see that he was heard because of his godly fear or awe, reverence, and respect of the Father, the, uh, God the Father. So Jesus asked for the cup to be taken away from him. Go back to Luke twenty-two forty-two. Yet the cup was not taken away, and nevertheless his prayer was heard because his prayer was not to escape from his Father's will, but he wanted to be in complete, perfect will of his Father. And that prayer is always heard by God. Verse 8, though he was a son, capital S should be in your Bible, Jesus, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered. Did I skip something? No. don't think I did here. No. So, by the things which he suffered. So we sit, it's kind of an interesting verse here because Jesus, the Son of God, he learned obedience. What does that mean? You're saying to yourself, God knows all things. That is true. But here in the scripture talks about Jesus experiencing obedience. Learning, learning in obedience to come through with what he was to do by the will of God. That as a, a remember, God, Jesus was 100% fully God and he was also fully man. So he had to experience or learn through obedience by doing obedience. How do you as fathers teach your children obedience? How? By testing them and bringing them through moments where they need to make a choice. Am I going to be obedient or not? Son, I need you to do this. Please go do this. I don't want to, Father. Son, I'm asking you. You must go do this. You need to learn. Just be obedient. Why? Have you ever heard that from your three-year, five-year-old? Why? Well, I'll give you enough for you to understand at this point. But when you get older, I can go more in depth with you of why. But right now, you're going to have to trust your dad that this is good and right. I need you to learn. Just be obedient. And you teach and you teach and you never think your children are ever going to what? Get it. But all of a sudden, at some point, what happens? They do something and you go, sweetheart, what did Johnny just, what did, did, who did that? Did you do that for the boys? No, sweetheart. The boys obediently did it. They knew that their father would want them to do it. Oh, now you're praising. <laughs> you're, you're, you're so excited. The kids are finally getting it. Some things they get. And then the next thing, they don't do it at all. <laughs> but you have to take them to, again, patiently, gently, lovingly, you go back and bring them back to the next test of obedience. Does that not describe our Heavenly Father with us? Hello? He's gentle and loving and patient and kind to teach us, to get us to be obedient to his word of God. And when you don't do it, he kind of comes alongside. Again, as a loving father, he comes alongside. You'll feel the pressure of dad's hand on your back going, I really, you need to be obedient. Well, I want to go play. 
Let's go back to the subject. You need to first clean your room. You've got to get this out of your life. Clean up your room here, this house, before I'm going to bless you and move you on to the next. That's how he works with this. And he had to learn. We see Jesus did not pass from disobedience to obedience. That's not what we're talking here. He learned obedience by actually obeying. Jesus did not learn how to obey. He learned that what is involved in obedience. Experienced the obedience. That's what he was learning in his state that he was in on this earth. He learned obedience by things which he suffered. How did he learn? Through the suffering. Suffering was used to teach Jesus to experience obedience through that suffering. If suffering was good enough to teach the Son of God to learn to experience obedience, how much more will we learn through our suffering as well? The Bible never teaches that strong faith will keep a Christian from all suffering. That does not teach that. If you hear that false teaching, it's false teaching. God didn't promise to keep us from suffering. Matter of fact, he said we will go through tremendous persecution and tribulation. And yes, we do suffer. Christ or Christians are appointed to afflictions, 1 Thessalonians 3.3. And it's through many tribulations we enter into the kingdom of God through that promise Acts 14.22. Our present suffering is the prelude to what? To our glorification. When God takes us home and brings us into our glorified state, we see that written in Romans 8, 8 verse 17. In verse 9, having been perfected. That ancient Greek word means completed or consecration. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Very important verse. Jesus' experience of suffering and subsequent resurrection made him perfectly suited to be the author or the source or the cause of our salvation. He went through the suffering for him to be in a position To bring salvation to you and me. That's how much he loves you. Some don't want Jesus to be the author of their salvation. They want to write their own book of salvation. And they create in their minds that they're going to heaven. Oh, really? What is that based upon? Because God loves everybody. He takes everybody. And you don't. It's just the way it is. They create their own book of salvation, their own way of salvation. But God won't read whatever you just wrote. It's already been written. Only Jesus can author your eternal salvation. There is no one else that can do it. No one. He's the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Not some. To all who obey him. The salvation is, is extended to all who will obey him. And it's to describe those who believe on him, who simply assume, will come to him and surrender all and know that he is the only way, the truth, and the life. And you will be saved. 
Verse 10, called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, he, the writer here of Hebrews emphasizes the repeating and repeating to get a point across that Jesus is a high priest who was called by God and not personal ambition, but not by some congregation voting, not by politicking to get into the position, but a calling by God in the order of Melchizedek. And in chapter 7, we will learn much more of that. With that said, I am not going to finish chapter 5. I, 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 can, I can tell already that it would take me another hour to get through the next three verses. So for your sake and for how much your seat can endure on those benches and the heat in here, 